Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can, and here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular film Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowie at cheapthings.com. Book early. V is for Tony Visconti, of course. Of course it is. Anthony Edward Visconti, born 24th of April 1944, American record producer, musician and singer. And since the late 60s, he's worked with an array of performers. His lengthiest involvement, which is why we're here, was with David Bowie. Intermittently from Bowie's second album in 1969 to 2016's Black Star, Visconti produced and occasionally performed on many of Bowie's albums. His work on Black Star was cited in its Grammy Award for the Best Engineered Album. Fabulous stuff. So Visconti was born in Brooklyn, New York. He started to play the ukulele when he was five years old and then learned guitar. Through his teenage years, Visconti was involved with both the classical brass band playing tuba and a traditional orchestra playing double bass, as well as playing rock guitar. Uh, By the age of 15, he focused his efforts playing in local Brooklyn bands. After leaving school, he played guitar in Ricardo and the Latin Ears up in the Catskills. In 1960, he played his first recording session and over the next few years became one of the leading guitarists in New York nightclubs. He played in lounge acts, including the Ned Harvey Band, the Speedy Garfin Band. (laughs) If you you were called Speedy Garfin, you would need to be the band leader, wouldn't you? You would, of course. Before joining a touring version of the Crew Cuts, where he met his future wife. As Tony and Sigrid, the pair released two singles. The first of these, Long Hair, was a a regional hit in New York in 1966. Oh, long hair. 
Uh, Visconti then became the in-house producer for his publisher, the Richmond Organisation. In 1968, this connection led him to Denny Cordell, who was then working as Richmond's in-house producer. Cordell asked him to assist in recordings for the jazz vocalist Georgie Fame. Visconti then moved to London. This is the move that would really define his career, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So one of his first production jobs in England was with the Ivies, later known as Badfinger. Mm. He produced several tracks for the band's first LP, Maybe Tomorrow, released on the Beatles' Apple label. The title track from this album was released as a single. More early production work on the album My People Were Fair and had Sky in their hair, but now they're content to wear stars on their brows. For Tyrannosaurus Rex began a relationship with T-Rex and Mark Boland that would last for the next seven albums. One of Visconti's greatest successes was 1971's Electric Warrior, the album that made Boland a superstar. He also produced the first two albums by the prog rocker's Gentle Giant, and he was in them for a while, playing keyboards, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, Shortly afterwards, he began to work with David Bowie, and along with the guitarist uh, Mick Ronson and drummer John Cambridge, formed and toured with the band The Hype, in which he played bass. C-H... I do remember. Mm. Um, although the band name would be very short-lived, most of the lineup persisted and, with Woody Woodman's replacing Cambridge, would go on to record The Man Who Sold the World in 1970. He would further go on to work with Bowie on albums Diamond Dogs, Young Americans Low, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> we're going to go through his discography later on, but yes. um, also, I mean, these albums, we won't go in in-depth because we've either done them yes. or we will be doing them. That's right, so there's no point doing it twice. Indeedy. So we're going to move on to his personal life now, aren't we? We are. So after divorcing his first first wife, Sigrid, Visconti married the Welsh folk singer Mary Hopkin in 1971, before divorcing in 1981. The pair have two children, musicians Jessica Lee Morgan and Morgan Visconti. So Jessica um, actually tweeted me, yes, uh, because I want to see Holy Holy, of course she's a part of Holy Holy. Hmm. And she tweeted me the day after uh, the Manchester show and said, oh, I'm sorry I didn't get to see you last night because I, I went and said hello to Paul Cudderford. Oh, yes. There was a million people around Woody, yeah. so I left him to it. I thought, I'm not going to badger him. Yeah. Uh, but I badgered Paul Cudderford, who's a, an amazing guitarist alongside James Stevenson. Uh, but I didn't see uh, Jessica. She was knocking about, but I'd never met her. And yeah. I, you know, you yeah. don't want to be presumptuous and all that. And then the following day, she said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you last night, which was uh, really, Aww. really sweet of her. Um, but, uh, yeah, she's, she's a really talented artist. Absolutely, right. You know, I mean, she take, yeah. she took over, actually, from uh, Terry Edwards, didn't she? In yeah, Holy she did. Holy. She did, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So okay. Tony Visconti married for a third time in 1989 to May Pang, um, with whom he had two children before divorcing in 2000. Oh, I meant to say, uh, that Jessica did say in the tweet, she said, oh, you did a, a really nice um, section on my mum, Mary Hopkins. Ah, right, okay, in, brilliant. In the podcast, so there you go. Yeah, all bases covered. So, as you just mentioned, since 2015, Visconti has toured the UK, Japan and America with the Bowie supergroup Holy Holy, playing The Man Who Sold the World and The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust in their entirety, alongside other Bowie classics, of course. The band includes The Spiders' original drummer Mick Woodmancy, as we know, Woody Woodmancy, and Heaven 17's Glenn Gregory. In fact, should we run through the band lineup? We might as well, yeah. So, bass, Tony Visconti. Drums, Woody Woodmancy. Uh, vocals, Glenn Gregory. Guitar, James Stevenson. Guitar, Paul Cuddiford. Hello, Paul. Keyboards, Berenice Scott. Uh, vocals, saxophone, guitar, Jessica Lee Morgan. Previously, yes, Terry Edwards. Hello, Terry, as well. So, um, yeah, holy, holy. We oh. went to see him in Liverpool, didn't we? We did, yes. And they were absolutely brilliant. Oh, they were stunning. They and really a lot were. of people have said to me, you know, about uh, the Bowie thing. For people who are uh, particularly keen on Bowie, the mm. thought of uh, anybody stepping into uh, David's shoes is yes. like, it's, it's a very, very uncomfortable fit. Of course. You would think. Uh, but uh, I remember seeing uh, Holy, Holy for the first time, and Glenn Gregory was just absolutely brilliant. He 
He was brilliant. The first time I saw him, you know, the first time you watch them, you think you're sort of on tenterhooks a little bit, aren't you? Because you're not quite sure what to expect. And I didn't want Glenn Gregory to try and be Bowie. And thankfully, intelligently, he wasn't. He does what he does. He delivers it brilliantly. And the band are fantastic as well. But it's not like anybody's trying to ape what Bowie was doing. It's weird, you know, because I'm a, a contrary bugger. Yes, you as are. You, as you know. And so, I mean, if I go and see a, a, a tribute band, I want them to dress up like the tribute <laughs> band, right? I want them to wear all the club I mentioned before, but I see nearly Dan, and they were just scruffy gits. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, I'm sure Steely Dan were quite scruffy. Well, they were. <laughs> Long hair and denim's mark. What are you expecting? There were no, there were no wigs or anything. It was just, it, oh, you know, they didn't, right. they didn't pull the stops out at all, you know. And then conversely, you, you like these absolute Bowie, where yeah. they really go oh. like ex- slightly exaggerated. You would mm, have to say, yeah. Uh, but with Holy Holy, you just think, right, we don't need any messing about here. As Woody always says, it's not a tribute band, you know. No, of course, it and is. it isn't. And so uh, Glenn Gregory is just Glenn Gregory uh, but he's got an amazing voice and an amazing yeah. vocal range and so he can handle it yeah of course naturally you've got Woody there and, and Visconti you're looking at them all the time that's why you know I mean <clears throat> obviously Ziggy's a, a bigger album but I do like The Man Who Sold The World as much as Ziggy oh yeah probably more to be mm, honest possibly yeah and so uh, it's a, the real thrill of the evening is watching them do the songs that they play together yeah. with the hype isn't it yeah it is yeah. and also the fact that James Stevenson and Paul Cudderford just replicate the, the layered guitars of Ronson on that album particularly mind-blowing yeah especially what you see them do with the circle and oh, it really is mind-blowing that's the best isn't it okay so on to the bowie connection now for tony visconti the 29th of april 1967 tony visconti arrives in the uk to work as an assistant to producer denny cordell within three days of landing visconti had met Jimi hendrix backstage at the savile theater in london as well as donovan and brian jones who walked in on a session he was involved in it must have been such a cultural moment for visconti wasn't it that what well, i mean meeting Jimi hendrix as well, yeah. what a start that is. He must have just thought, I am in heaven here. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going back to America. Yeah, arriving in London in 67, amazing. So the 24th of July, now 1967, informed of Visconti by music publisher David Platts, Bowie's manager Ken Pitt arranges a meeting to discuss the possibility of working with David. Pitt remembered later, as I was leaving the flat, David was so excited and said, ring me as soon as you can, I'll be sitting by the phone. So this from uh, Tony's book, which is called uh, Bowie, Bolan and the Brooklyn Boy. Just before we start, Mark, my book here's got is signed by the author yeah so is mine oh fancy that eh yeah um actually (laughs) go on (laughs) what Oh, no, this is signed by you. <laughs> you bought it for I me. That's what I'm waiting for. Love it, oh, right. yeah, sorry. <laughs> Thanks for all the games, but rusty trombones and mole's noses. It's never been anything but a hoot. Cheers for asking me to do it, Bob. <laughs> that was when we finished doing Mint, wasn't it? Yeah. But, but Tony Visconti has signed that. I'll Brilliant. Just you know. yeah, he, has, he has signed it. Yeah, thank you, mate. God, that just came flooding back to me then. <laughs> I can't thank you enough, Bob. That's all right. Any time, mate. <laughs> How many years? I thought, anyway. Hang on a minute. You don't call Bob Visconti, is he? Are we, we going to have to do this section all again? Oh, I've been getting it wrong all these years. Well, do you know when I said to him, higher Tony at Leeds, all yeah, those years, yeah, it yeah. should have been higher, Bob. Oh, do you know what? <laughs> now, I've got to try and read this with water in my eyes. Okay, wish me luck, everybody. Behind David Platz's office was a small room with a piano. It harked back to the days, not that long before, when a publisher actually had a member of staff sit at the piano and play a song to a prospective singer, or songwriters would play their latest compositions to the publisher. Platz led me to this inner sanctum, and there was David Bowie, nervous and shy. 
I realised then that this casual encounter was a setup. As I shook Bowie's hand, I realised that he had two different coloured eyes. He didn't. Uh, the only other person I'd ever met with two different coloured eyes was Jerry Lieber of Lieber and Stoller. After a brief introduction, Platts wisely left us alone. I liked David Bowie immediately. So he continued, We talked for ages about anything and everything, like two people getting on really well at a party. David seemed obsessed with American music in the same way I was with British music. He told me he bought as many American records as he could. He adored Little Richard. He also liked American jazz, sax player Jerry Mulligan in particular. He said he also played baritone sax and he loved underground music like Frank Zappa and the Fugs. I had the same records in my collection. Another album that we shared a mutual love for was Ken Nordine's Word Jazz. He was a radio announcer from the American Midwest with a very deep voice. He made a spoken word album with jazz music and some sound effects for accompaniment. It was another album I'd bought back in the States and David had it too. We must have been one of a dozen people who had bought it. We decided to leave the stuffy office and take a walk and eventually found ourselves on King's Road. We came across a small cinema showing Roman Polanski's A Knife in the Water. We watched it and discovered another shared interest, foreign art films. Oh, I. <laughs> if it was in black and white, made anywhere but in the USA or the UK, it was scratchy and had subtitles. We loved it. I left David around 6pm and went back home to Elgin Avenue and told Sigrid about my new friend. Oh, how nice. So he continued, within a few days, David and I started working together. He was signed to DRAM, but was on tenuous terms with them. His debut album, the one I'd heard in David Platz's office, didn't do well. It certainly didn't chart. With its variety of styles, it didn't seem to fit anywhere. And with no hit singles, it didn't get airplay. David played a wicked 12-string rhythm guitar and had a flair for putting odd chords together. But the LP was not very youth-orientated and seemed out of kilter with what was happening on the scene. But there was something that was consistently evident in his later songs, kind of acoustic folk rock style. One song especially, Let Me Sleep Beside You, sounded very cool, almost American. On the 1st of September, we went into AdVision Studios in New Bond Street and recorded it along with another of David's songs called Karma Man. Its subject matter alluded to Tibetan Buddhism, another fascination we shared. These sessions went very well with both Big Jim Sullivan and John McLaughlin on guitars, but we were in trouble from the start. DRAM's A&R people said Let Me Sleep Beside You was too sexual in content and the BBC wouldn't play Naughty BBC. Uh, after this was put to David, he reluctantly bowed to their wishes and punched in the line, let me be beside you. Of course, it changed the meaning and didn't have the same impact. DRAM then dropped their concern for the suggestive original title and it went out that way. The BBC ignored the single. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Speaking in 1976, Bowie talked of getting to know Visconti. We became friends first. We didn't talk about music. I was still wondering if I found God as a Buddhist or whether I wanted to be a rock and roll star. So we had a lot to talk about, East and West. And Tony was well into the Tibetan thing. We used to spend crazy evenings alone with orchestrator Paul Bookmaster as well. Yeah. And they used to go off looking for UFOs on Hampstead Heath. They did. Indeed they did. This is an interesting snippet, quite a random thing as well. Tony Visconti was amongst the guest speakers at the Divi. Bowie is exhibition in Brooklyn last year and they got talking about lots of stuff I mean Carlos Alomar did a piece there and Visconti was there talking about his career with Bowie naturally and they got onto the subject of Lodger uh, in 1979 he was saying how they were the sessions themselves were beset by problems both logistical and creative uh, Visconti remembered the sessions being stuffy and hot he said I've got so many pictures of Brian Eno topless Four. Mick Jagger dropped by the studio while the two were mixing Lodger and proceeded to pick it apart at every turn quote Mick continued to put it down Oh, that drum. Oh, that fill isn't any good. When asked by Visconti to quit jabbing at their work, Jagger replied, Well, OK, I guess I'll go down the road and sabotage Joni Mitchell's album. <laughs> I'm glad we had the original audio for that. that was, Remarkable. That, I was quite pleased with that. I mean, if Spitting Image was still about, I'd be oh, on it, wouldn't I? It, absolutely. If he quids in. Uh, plus this great little story about Visconti and Bowie being taken to the cleaners by a supposed Tibetan guru. Okay, so This is madness. This is bizarre. I didn't know this story. So, to set it up, Bowie and Visconti would go on to absorb sincere lessons from their Buddhist studies, but it all began with a false Tibetan Lama author, Lobsang Rampa. <laughs> Visconti's quoted here. He was actually a German journalist who wrote all these stories about Tibet and presented it as an autobiography. So we read all these books in our teens. We were like... We've got to meet Lobsang Rampa. It was authentic, except that he wasn't a real Tibetan Lama. Uh, Visconti then joked about the real identity of the author, who in real life turned out to be a plumber from Devonshire. His name, he said, was actually Fritz Kriesler. <laughs> what the hell? Do you know, I've been reading recently about uh, the uh, art hoax that, uh, that Bowie did with William Boyd. Uh, it, it just come out. I don't know. How, it's probably been out in the uh, ether for a long right. time, but I'd not stumbled across it. Uh, but check it out. It's interesting. But I'm just thinking about perhaps he was, uh, you know, just inspired to do it by this. Possibly, yes. It, what a great story <laughs> that is. That is. Um, uh, talking to the Telegraph in 2016, Visconti gave an insight into the kind of relationship he enjoyed with Bowie. David and I had some words occasionally, he says. One such occasion was the first day of the recording of the sessions for 1980's Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. Quote, he came into the studio with nothing written, and at the time I was having trouble with my marriage to 60s pop star Mary Hopkins. I just thought, oh, I'm going to waste all this time waiting for him to write a song in the studio. So he continued, uh, so I called him out and he said, look, Tony, I can see you're in a bad mood. Just go back to the hotel and I'll come and see you later. And David came round and he said tenderly, what's wrong? And I said, my marriage is breaking down. And he threw his arms around me and we had the greatest talk. Uh, yeah, and, and if you look at the, the length of the relationship with um, with uh, Tony and David, then you would have to say over all those years, you're going to have your fallings out, aren't of course, you? Of course you are, yeah. Absolutely. But the fact that he was there at the end just speaks for it all, yeah. really. In January 2017, on the first anniversary of Bowie's death, Visconti said, he was a legend in his lifetime and he will be a legend until the end of time. But he was my friend too, 
I miss him dearly. We've got yeah. more um, actually the the full O bit, uh, which we if we get time we'll yes. we'll, we'll get a, we'll take a look at later on. Cause yeah, it's, it's very very touching. Yeah, from, from Tony to David Bowie. That's right. Yeah, he talked. He has he released a statement, didn't he? So should we have a look at the discography of uh, Tony Visconti just briefly? If we run through it, we will. I mean, what we should do is we should have a look at the two kind of what people of our age particularly perceive to be the the uh, main body of work for him, which mm. is with two artists, which will be T Rex and David Bowie, which yeah, of sure. course overlap. So should we have a look at T Rex? first let's do it shall we i'll tell you what i'll say this first because it's a bugger and you've done it once i have so 1968 my people were fair and had sky in their hair but now they're content to wear stars on their brows by tyrannosaurus rex which is just like the longest title with oh. the band name as well uh, Blumming, eh? yeah well done uh 1968 also prophets seers and sages the angels of the ages tyrannosaurus rex 1969 Whew. unicorn or Tyrannosaurus Rex. 1970, few again, a beard of stars, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Now then, thankfully, they <laughs> realised it was one of those things, you know, whereby a few bands have done this, but I read that they actually changed it from Tyrannosaurus Rex to T-Rex because the BBC disc jockeys couldn't pronounce it. Is that right? Yeah. Wow, OK. And that's... I've just proved them wrong on several occasions. <laughs> well, you're superior, aren't you, Mark? Well, completely. So 1970 saw the release of the T-Rex album. 1971, Electric Warrior. Well, that is where uh, things changed, really, well, wasn't it, you know? Yeah, 1972, Bowl and Boogie. 1972, The Slider, for me, the best T-Rex album, personally. Great album. 1973, Tanks with an X. 1974, here we go, Zinc Alloy and the Hidden Riders of Tomorrow, an obvious nod there to uh, Ziggy Stardust. 1981, In Concert, actually 1971-72 recordings. Which was, of course, at the height of uh, T-Rex-tacy, or T-Rex mania, whatever yeah. you call it, you know? So, um, I, I, I went to see T-Rex, but not till 1974, Ooh. and it was still bonkers. Yeah. I can't even begin to imagine what it was like around about 1972 mm. and going into 73. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is about Visconti, he did oversee that transition, didn't he? He had Tyrannosaurus Rex, hippies, all the pixie obsession, Tolkien, all the rest of it. Suddenly, they're glam rock warriors, you know, the right up there, superstars. And it was that thing, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know I don't know what was the, the, the turning point for Boland, but we've talked before about the hype gig, mm. which, as we know, Bowie and, 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 and his mate, so John Cambridge and Tony Visconti, <clears throat> Mick Ronson, they all wore various costumes. Mm. And we know that Mark Boland wore the Roman breastplate that That's he bought right. from... You see, Mark Boland was tiny. <laughs> he was. And he bought a Roman breastplate, presumably a child's one, from Woolworths. That's right. And went along and he was doing his own little bit in the audience. <laughs> probably like thinking, you, you know, I wonder if he would, I thought everybody would be looking at him rather than the band. <laughs> Possibly. It is possible because yeah. did you say to me before, was it John Cambridge said that nobody was watching them at the, at the uh, roundhouse? Oh yeah, nobody was bothered. They were still chatting amongst themselves yeah. or, you know, getting stoned or whatever. So you there know. you go. But also, this is an interesting uh, little nugget. So like I say, the slider for me, I, I absolutely love that mm. album. That is it for me uh, but uh, the front and back cover of the slider yeah. the famous black and white shop and it is of Mark Boland with a big top hat yes, on yeah. and uh, and it has always been credited to Ringo Starr mm. and now the thing is that uh, it was taken during the filming of the Born to Boogie film which again is a game of two halves you've got all of that footage from Wembley yeah. which is immense and amazing and then you've got the stuff with that a bit like the Led Zeppelin film you've got the kind yeah. of uh, almost fantasy um, uh, you know uh, comedic Quite, stuff yeah. you know and <clears throat> It doesn't really work no. for me. Um, but the uh, the photograph for the front and back were taken during the shoot of that film. Yeah. And it's always been uh, credited to Ringo Starr, but Tony Visconti came out not so long ago and said that he actually took the photographs. Because Ringo was too busy directing the film at the time, lining up his shots and everything. So he said that Bowling came up to him and, and gave him his Nikon camera and just, just said, just take a couple of rolls of these. So Visconti took those pictures. He claims. He did, but also wasn't it suggested that Mark Boland wanted Ringo Starr down 
to be the photographer because yeah. he was a massive name. To have a, a, a Beatle on your album cover yeah. being credited as taking a photograph of you, that is a real ner 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 to everybody, isn't it? And, and quite typical of Mark Boland, really. So, yeah. you know, you don't let the facts get in the way. If people go, wow, you've got a Beatle taking mm. your photograph for your album cover, you're great. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. I think that's exactly why he did it. And, of course, Ringo didn't dispute it either. It's a good thing for him. Yeah, no, fair enough. Easy to forget, isn't it, just how massive T-Rex were... And so uh, it was. A, you have to say that Visconti's decision to go with T-Rex and leave Bowie alone for a while was vindicated by that because, what was it, about four number one hits before Bowie had even got off the ground with Starman? So he was right there when uh, Mark Boland took off and a major part of that. Well, and we were just talking about the hype and we even talked about the fact that when they, they played the gig that night, I think it was at the uh, the Roundhouse, but um, Tony Visconti's gear got nicked and he That's ended right. up being driven home by uh, whoever in his underpants. In Rupert the Riley, which was a very drafty car, I He believe. was in Rupert yeah. the Riley, was it? Okay. And yeah. so, I mean, there was, there was no glamour. It didn't seem to be going anywhere unless mm. we forget at that point in time, you know, they, uh, they had done the man who sold the world but nobody was particularly interested it seems supposedly not even david was that mm. interested because obviously he was flitting all over the place mm. but he had also just fallen in love with angie and, yeah. and had gotten married and all that kind of stuff and so the story is i know bowie refutes it but i think the other three who were working on it at the time did say yeah he was a, he was a bit distracted yes and so he probably just thought ah oh, to hell with it. i'm gonna go off with mark boland and just see what happens and of course he couldn't have foreseen them being like as big as the beatles at that point in time which they were they were deemed to be anyway that was the thing i mean obviously they didn't really take off in the states did they but as, as regards the uk went it was the biggest thing since beatlemania wasn't it the, it, it the really Boland really thing. was i was there uh, it's also interesting just to speculate what would have happened with bowie and those stretch of albums that ken scott oversaw yeah. if tony visconti had been around because as we know he wasn't there backwards about coming forwards was he tony visconti because he told david that he didn't like space oddity yeah and he what yeah he, and he wouldn't have anything to do, to do with it so he, he might <laughs> Can you imagine? It wouldn't have happened, Tony. Don't, don't, I don't want to see you in court. But can you imagine if you had said, David, 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 this life on Mars. Oh, bloody no, it's woeful. Or oh, imagine. Put it in the cupboard. Because you can't imagine those albums, Kenny, Hunky Dory, Ziggy, or Latin Saints, sounding any different. They have to sound that way, you know? Yeah, I don't know, but uh, it is funny. I mean, because uh, Tony Visconti does recognise the fact that now Space Odyssey is a great record. Yes, of course. I'm sure is. he does. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, he, he was wrong on that particular occasion, even if he do not think he was. <laughs> most other people do. Yes. But uh, anyway, he, yeah, okay. He was right on the others, let's say that. He yeah. Made, yeah, okay. So, Tony Visconti's uh, discography with Bowie then. Yeah, we've got um, 1969, David Bowie, also known as Space Oddity. 1970, The Man Who Sold the World. 74, David Live. 1975, Young Americans. 1977, Low. Same year, Heroes. 1978, Stage. 1979, Lodger. 1980, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. Then we have a huge leap. 2002, Heathen. 2003, Reality. 2013, The Next Day. 2016 Black Star. And there is 2018 Welcome to the Blackout, which was live in London from 78 on the stage tour. Yeah, it's also interesting to look at the uh, the gap, isn't it? Uh, the 22-year gap that the, uh, David had with Tony Visconti. Mm. And and again, you know, he was so adventurous. And he would change musicians left, right and centre. He would change his identity, as we know. Yeah. He would change the sound of his records. And so, yeah, I would have thought that, you know, working with the same producer, it, would, it wouldn't be the right thing for Bowie to do. I'm sure that Tony would agree with that. But yeah. 22 years, at that point in time, you probably think, right, well, we're done. We, mm. You know, we, mm. we're not really going to be working together again. And over that point in time, he worked with Nile Rodgers. Yeah. Today. 
success, yeah. hadn't he? Yeah, uh, Brian Eno, of course, David Richards, people like that. Mark Platty, yeah. yeah. And of course, Hugh Padgham on tonight and also with Tin Machine. Yeah, so Bowie, he obviously felt comfortable with Tony, didn't he? And he was confident that as a pair, they could deliver the right sound for what was to prove to be his best critically received album for some time, Heathen. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I mean, and always, as we mentioned before, um, always trotted out as the best Bowie album since Scary Monsters. Bowie must have got so sick of that, wasn't yeah. he? I mean, they just obviously had that, like a couple of million stickers printed up and then yeah. just put it on each album as it came out in succession. <laughs> Absolutely. But to many people, though, Heroes is Tony Visconti's defining hour with Bowie, isn't it? It is, yeah. We've we got have. a little bit here, haven't we, Bob? Uh, mm. Tony Visconti discussing the recording of Heroes, which is kind of legendary. Mm. And we do need to have a look at I think. Okay, so this is what he said. I produced a song by Davey Bowie called Heroes. They use it for every heroic event, although it's a song about alcoholics. We did it on 24 tracks in Hansa Studios in Berlin with all of the backing vocals and instruments on it. We only had one track left for the vocal. Remarkable, isn't it? So Bowie would do a take and listen to it and he'd say I think I've got one better. And I'd say well, you know, we can't keep that take. This was before digital recording. So we'd pull his socks up, take a deep breath and go and do a better take than the one he'd done before. And that was it. It was gone. The previous vocal was gone and we just kept doing that. Having experience in the studio, you have to know when to say, I think we've got the take. There's no way of going back to take five or take two. They were gone, evaporated. I did a lot of records that way. That's when you work as a team, as a producer, coach, singer, artist. Everybody's on the same page and everybody's just hyped up with adrenaline. Uh, Hansa was a studio where you could record symphony orchestras. You can have about 150 pieces in this room. And here was David Bowie standing in this enormous auditorium. Every time he sang, and he could sing very loud, his voice was echoing off the walls and the ceiling and everything. I said, could you give me half an hour? I want to set up two microphones. So I set up a, a Neumann U47 in front of him. And then about 15 or 20 feet away, I set up something like a 67. Then way down the hall, I set up another condenser microphone. This is a legendary technique, isn't yeah. it? I only had one track left so I couldn't record these microphones on separate tracks. What I did is put a gate on microphone two and another gate on microphone three. So when he sang like this, deep voice, those microphones wouldn't open up. You wouldn't hear the ambience in the room. When he sang like this, loud voice, the middle microphone would open up and he went, no, I'm not going to scream, but oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, that's called Bowie Histrionics. All three microphones would open up, and the reverb you hear on that recording is only that room. That's genius, that. It's, it's just brilliant. absolutely brilliant. Talk about using the room. Uh, you'll hear some backing vocalists, and that was done by two people only. One person has a British accent, the other has a Brooklyn accent. So you can figure out who's singing what. I'm the Brooklyn guy. Yeah, and we just, uh, I mean, we could hone in on so many different songs. Um, and uh, But Heroes is generally seen by many people up, with, up there with Life on Mars, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's the iconic Bowie track, isn't it? It is, really. I mean, a bit like, you know, as he, as Tony Visconti says, like, you know, uh, We Are the Champions is the Queen, yeah. omnipresent. Mm. Well, Heroes is kind of it for Bowie. Yeah, you would absolutely. Have to say. Of course it is. So this from Q Magazine now, okay, by Richard Buskin, uh, accompanied by a great photo of Bowie, Visconti, and the engineer Edu Man in Hansa Studios all sporting Tashi have you seen this it's one it's a famous you, photo yeah it's, it, it, nobody looks great Visconti looks quite good actually it's just so brilliant isn't it and uh, obviously they were just doing it for a bit of a laugh because Movember didn't exist then. no and no. We, we, we've all done it now yeah, and it's a yeah. cool thing to do but it, it just looks very wrong <laughs> and it's one of those things where we've said before you know about uh, Bowie would have looked very wrong if he'd went bald yes that wouldn't have been no, that, that would have been really really harsh you know a it, lot of people can get away with it you know yeah. it doesn't matter with Phil Collins no of course 
never did, did it? Let's face it. But with David Bowie, it would have mattered. But to see him with a moustache was a little bit startling, wasn't it? It was, yeah. So uh, this is a continuation then of this Q magazine article. It only reached number 24 in the UK singles chart and failed to make America's Billboard Hot 100 at all. Yet today, Heroes is one of David Bowie's most popular numbers, named by Rolling Stone and Q magazines as being amongst the greatest songs of all time, which just goes to show that first impressions, especially those of a fickle record-buying public, are not always what they're cracked up to be. So this is a quote from Tony. We eat together, we go to shows together, go to clubs together and really soak in the local culture. That's always been his way of working and Berlin was perfect for him in terms of what he wanted at the time. It was a stark, scary place, yet it had exciting nightlife with exotic locales such as the Turkish Quarter and it was swarming with artists like Tangerine Dream who were friends of ours. David was writing with Brian Eno back then and the three of us got on really great. So the article continues... Bowie himself asserted that his approach to songwriting is constantly changing. Sometimes, he says, I'll inflict rules like, all right, this piece can only have five chords and go from there, he explained, because it can be good to set parameters. Then again, I've developed such a lot of different processes over the years, ranging from accidents of looping, taking three or four chords, looping them in a particular way, then writing a melodic theme over the top of them, to old-fashioned, crafted songs. According to Visconti, it was normal for Bowie to pen a song's lyrics a month or two after its chord structure had already been figured out. Quote, We would work on the musical content. David would have some idea as to what the song was about, and we would use that idea, like if it was going to be a happy song or a depressing song, to make the instruments come out with an emphatic arrangement or sound in order to invoke the desired emotion. Then the stage would be set and David would throw his lyrics on at the very last minute. He'd write his lyrics in the morning. It would take him maybe an hour or two. But beforehand, he'd also need a month or two to let the ideas really germinate. There's a sense of freedom working with Tony that I rarely find with other producers, David Bowie remarked. It's a non-judgmental situation where I can just fart about and play quite badly on all manner of instruments and Tony doesn't laugh. I can't tell you how important it is to feel that free in the studio and that somebody isn't judging your musical abilities. Often when I've done something with Tony, it just sounds right. It might not be played perfectly. There's no virtuosity on the keyboards or anything. But there's a certain way that I'll put a B-flat into a chord that nobody else would, probably because they've been trained properly and it just sounds interesting. Well, Tony can spot that, whereas a lot of other producers will say, whoa, that B-flat's a bit suspect. I'll be thinking, oh, shit, no, that sounds good, Mr. Producer. (laughs) And so it is... It's, it's very true, that, isn't it? You know, it's like, like, there's obviously just no real snobbery involved there. No, not at which, all. Which is crucial. Yeah. Okay, so um, Tony Visconti on Bowie's death, Tony's statement. We mentioned we'd uh, be having a look at this. Yeah, we? so this is uh, actually dated, so a year on. So this is dated 10th of January 2017, where titled by Tony Visconti, The Worst Next Day. He says, um, I was sound asleep in a hotel room in Toronto when my phone lit up around 2am with text every second. The messages were more or less the same thing. David Bowie has died, something I'd been dreading for a year. Strangely, I said to myself, oh God, and fell back asleep. Holy Holy had played an exhausting show the night before. He continued, my roommate, saxophonist Terry Edwards, woke me up gently around 7am whispering, Tony, something terrible's happened. A few minutes later, Woody Woodmanzer came into my room and tried to console me. My band, Holy Holy, hadn't any idea David was terminally ill. I'd signed an NDA a year earlier, which was unnecessary, vowing I wouldn't reveal any details about the recording of Black Star. The shock was obviously greater to them. Oh, he continued, just two days earlier, they were overjoyed to hear that the album was released, as I was. We've been paying tribute to David since 2015, playing The Man Who Sold The World in its entirety, along with other great Bowie songs, specifically ones that Woody and I had a part in making. I showed David a video of us playing the width of a circle live at the Shepherd's Bush Empire and he tacitly approved. 
Looking back at it, I realised I was so fortunate I was with my band when the news broke. If I was on my own, I would have been totally devastated. Uh, totally. We were asked to do a second show that evening to accommodate those who couldn't get in the night before. We had to discuss whether it was better to end the tour there and then or play this one final show. Yeah, he continued. Considering our feelings and love for the great man and the beautiful audience in Toronto who came for the first ecstatic night, there was only one right answer. We played, but it was a very different show. Woody and I addressed the audience before we played and said we felt it was appropriate to celebrate our dear friend's life together rather than scatter to the four winds and our own private grief. That would come later, of course. Of course, some of the audience couldn't hold back the tears, but we, the band, and the audience were all there for each other. So, grief is a very real thing. There's no control over it. I've been on an emotional roller coaster all year, and I know most of you have been too. I talk to David in my head all the time. It's still very hard to come to terms with. In the last year of his life, he was so vibrant and creative. Again, Tony continues, making Black Star wasn't a haphazard affair. We knew every minute we were making something akin to constructing a Gothic cathedral. This was a very special album from day one. David was so happy and energetic making the next day, but on Black Star he was so much stronger, more positive and bursting with creativity. Our team, the band, the technicians and everyone who visited us in the studio kept shooting glances at each other. Is this really happening? He continued, when the singles Black Star and Lazarus were released and then the album, we were right there cheering along with the public. At last we could talk about it, albeit very little. A worldwide celebration exploded with the news of new David Bowie music. So to sign off now, this is Tony again. I will end here. I will try to accept that David has passed. I've been through every stage of grief in the past 365 days, including anger. Of course, he never left us in spirit. We are fortunate to have lived in the same time as him. We've seen him. We've heard him sing and speak. We've hugged him. We've worshipped him. And we are constantly reminded of him daily. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. So as regards Tony then, we've looked at T-Rex and we've looked at David Bowie, obviously. So here are a few of the other people that he's worked with throughout his extensive career, Okay, We know Iggy Pop, The Idiot, 1977, and we can't run through it all, so we'll just go through a few names, shall we? We will, yeah. So Thin Lizzy. Argent. Caravan. Hazel O'Connor. Boomtown Rat. The Stranglers. Bark. Sparkle Horse. The Damned. Mark Almond. Seahorses. The Good, the Bad and the Queen. Moody Blues. Adamant. Rick Wakeman. Junior's Eyes, which is obviously the Bowie-affiliated band, and that was a Battersea Power Station album, 1969. Yeah, Mary Hopkin. His missus. And Difford and Tilbrook. All right, Bob, well, I think that we've done, um, Tony, some justice there. I hope so. I certainly hope so, yeah. I mean, there are certain people that just need to have... I mean, Mick Ronson had two episodes, uh, you Mm. know, and there are people who need a real severe, long look at, Mm. and I hope that we've done that for Tony Visconti. And we're going to go back to his book now, aren't we? Tony Visconti, Bowie Boland and Mm. the Brooklyn Boy, signed to me by Bob. And uh, and we're going to finish off with two different sections. So this section here, uh, what does this relate to, Bob? Well, this is about uh, an early gig with Bowie from 1970, where Bowie is playing with uh, members of Junior his eyes and just really trying to get going it's before the hype really okay mate so uh he's talking about uh, he mentions uh january 1970 uh david's 23rd birthday playing the speakeasy club and then a month later he says david myself john cambridge and tin rennick uh, played the marquee junior's eyes with a support band which is a strange turn of events as john drummed for both junior's eyes disbanded after the gig and john became our official drummer he moved into haddon hall the first lodger to sleep in the creepy gallery David briefly named us as Harry the Butcher. 
Two days later, David, John and myself recorded a session for the John Peel Sunday show before a live audience at the BBC's Paris studios in Lower Regent Street. During the making of the Space Oddity album, John Cambridge introduced us to a guitarist, his former bandmate from Hull, Mick Ronson. Their band had been called The Rats. Mick had come back down to London a few days earlier and David suggested he played the radio show with us. We were all very under-rehearsed, which was plain for all to hear. Is this your regular band, asked Peel. Um, I don't think so after tonight, said Bowie. Okay, and that was a joke, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Bowie? Yeah. Apparently, because I've read, I've read this before, he, he started laughing after he said, I don't think so. Yeah. So uh, he, he was obviously uh, happy with what had happened yeah. uh, within the session. And so we're going to move on now to another section, which is where um, uh, he meets John Lennon, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so they're recording in the hit factory in New York, aren't they, around the young American's time. Okay, so this is about David Bowie phoning Tony Visconti. John Lennon's coming to my suite at the hotel tonight and it would be great if you could be there and buffer the meeting between us. As we spoke, David seemed very nervous. I, on the other hand, couldn't wait to meet Lennon. I arrived about 11pm and having knocked on the door, there was no reply for a few minutes. I heard a lot of shuffling going on before a voice I didn't recognise said, Who is it? (laughs) When I identified myself, Neil Aspinall, the former Beatles roadie and now an Apple executive, opened the door. As I walked in, I looked to my left to see John Lennon emerging from the bathroom with a young Asian girl. I later found out she was May Pang. The four of us walked into the huge living room and there was David sitting on the floor next to a pretty Hispanic girl. Lennon and Pang were hiding in the bathroom as they thought I might have been the police. There was coke around and John didn't want to be implicated. Within minutes, everything was mellow. We were all partaking in the twin pillars of rock and roll camaraderie, cognac and coke. David was shy and avoiding Lennon. He just sat there on the floor drawing on a large sketch pad. The Hispanic girl never said a word and she was never introduced. I turned to Lennon and said, If you don't mind, John, I have about a hundred questions I'd like to ask you. He turned out to be very charming and replied, I don't mind, mate, if I have the answers. I asked him, with technical curiosity, lots of questions about Beatles' recordings, including the fingering of the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night. He was gracious and answered everything. When I told him how disappointed I was with Paul not crediting me and arranging the orchestral parts for Band on the Run, he surprised me with his answer. He said, You know what? Thanks for telling me that. Even if I whistled a part to an arranger and it was my idea, I'd still give the arranger a credit as orchestrator. I was about to call Paul tomorrow and get together with him, but you just reminded me what a f***ing c*** is. <laughs> H, do you want to beat that? <laughs> and you can keep that bit in as well. Um, I was later relieved to find out that I had not been the cause of John and Paul not getting together because May Pang assured me she and John had got together with the McCartneys at a later date. After John and I talked for hours, he decided to break the ice with David. Hey, David, do you have another one of those sketch pads? Certainly. David separated the leaves in half and gave John a bunch of pages and a pencil. They then entered into a fun sketching contest, each drawing rapid caricatures of each other. This finally drew them into conversation. I noted that May Pang visibly disapproved of John's drinking and coke-taking. Her stern expression never changed. She was sitting next to me and hadn't said a single word all night, so I decided to make some small talk. I didn't know what to say at first, and clumsily asked her, despite knowing the answer, are you Chinese or Japanese? <laughs> that is shocking. Chinese was her curt. Chinese was her curt reply. <laughs> oh, uh, does your father know kung fu? What? Uh, this elicited a dirty look from Pang, and I had no choice but to turn to Aspinall for conversation. <laughs> Luckily, it went somewhat better. Not the best way to get to know your future wife. Pretty shocking, really. Eventually, everyone in the room finally got into a dismally dark conversation about what does it all mean, it being life, which left us all staring dejectedly at the floor. <laughs> we were not helped by the dwindling effects of the cognac and coke. 
Finally, at around 10am, Lennon felt it was safe to leave. His reason being that if he left in broad daylight, he would not be targeted by the cops. He feared he'd be arrested, the police would plant drugs on him and he'd be deported before he could get his US green card. I left shortly afterwards and returned to David's suite around 4pm that afternoon to pick him up and go to the studio. David was still sitting in the same spot by the coffee table with the Hispanic lady sat beside him. Are you coming to the studio with me? No, I think I'm going to bed now, said David. It's like an episode. <laughs> of Stella Street, isn't it? It is, totally. For those who don't know, it's just a lot of pop stars just behaving very, very normally. Uh, but the thing is also very telling, and, you know, you would have to say that you might think John Lennon to be completely paranoid, you know, with yeah. all of the things going on yeah. in his mind and the cops and sure. all that. It was proved to be the case, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was proved. Yeah, the FBI had. And all justified. Yeah. So there you go. Um, uh, another episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that Tony Visconti, if he ever gets to hear it, enjoys it too. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early, 